This is a Piccolo podcast production. We head back to Australia's theme park capital this episode for part two of the Dreamworld tragedy. If you haven't already, go back and listen to part one before proceeding. I'm Holly Mitchell. You're listening to Fairground Fuck Ups. For 34 years, Dreamworld stood at the very top of the mountain of family entertainment in Australia. There were upstarts and competitors over the years, to be sure. Australia is not the backward desert nation some believe it to be, but there were no real contenders. From its very inception, Dreamworld, the brainchild of entrepreneur John Longhurst, was simply too big to fail. Over the years, there were financial hardships and growing pains, but nothing that threatened to close the gates of Australia's one-day holiday destination. And in 34 years, there had been no significant failures, natural or man-made disasters, or incidents resulting in injury that could tarnish the theme park's stellar reputation. Of course, from the top of the mountain, there is further to fall. In the middle of spring, on the 25th of October 2016, The park opened and received her visitors the same as any other day in history. This day was a family holiday for Kate Goodchild, who along with her newfound friend Cindy Lowe, her brother Luke Dorset, and his partner Ruzi Aragi, brought her 12-year-old daughter and Cindy's 10-year-old son to enjoy all the great place had to offer. Among the rides that were an absolute must for the group was the Thunder River Rapids. Earlier that day, maintenance staff had responded to a call at the ride, which had to be shut down temporarily while they determined what was wrong. The call was put in by a slightly panicked young operator, who, when pressed for a reason for the malfunction, could only offer the meek reply, I'm not sure, I've never been here before. Upon investigating, it was discovered that one of the pumps that channeled thousands of litres of water around the artificial river had failed, lowering the water level at the tail end of the ride. This meant that when the ride rafts reached this point, they would settle and come to a stop on a set of support rails. The raft would not reach the conveyor belt that would haul it up into the station so that riders could step off. And the rails were far too low for anyone to reach up to the station for help. At the time, Dreamworld guidelines only required two staff members to supervise the Thunder River Rapids ride. On the day of the breakdown, the more experienced attendants stayed at the station to assist patrons in getting on and off their rafts. And when the problem occurred, they were on hand to lend whatever assistance they could to the maintenance staff. In the control room for the ride was a newly christened park attendant, only days into the job. That morning, they had turned up to work and discovered only upon clocking in for the day that they would man the rapids. Dreamworld management prided themselves on the simplicity of their control systems which was not to say that the control panels themselves were particularly easy to use. Pressure gauges, separate pump controls, flow regulators, and an overwhelming amount of red lights resulted in a challenge even for an electrical engineer. But there were shortcuts, and the Dreamworld team had largely reduced the day-to-day operation of the Thunder River Rapids to two buttons. When asked by the new recruit about the large, poorly labeled button to one side, the supervising attendant responded, 
Don't worry about that button. No one uses it. After performing what amounted to pushing a reset button on the pumps, staff had the Thunder River Rapids back in action and patrons continued to enjoy their time until the system failed again two hours later. This was a frustrating and untenable position for Dreamworld. Their premier ride, arguably the most popular attraction at the park, was out of commission, much to the chagrin of park visitors who had been waiting their turn in line. The mandate was clear. Get the rapids back in action as soon as possible. Whatever the quickest means of restoring the pumps, the maintenance staff needed to get to it. While this was happening, the park safety manager at the time, Bob Tan, was put in mind of an incident he observed two years prior during an examination of the ride. In the same circumstances, an empty raft had become stuck on the rails at the bottom of the conveyor belt when another raft was propelled into it from behind by the artificial current. Tan observed the first raft lurch violently up onto its edge and very nearly flip completely over. His reflection, which he put in an email to Dreamworld's executive management, was... I shudder when I think if there had been guests on the rafts. Once more, the rapids were restarted and the queue began to proceed through the ride's barriers. Nearing the station were Kate Goodchild with her daughter, brother Luke Dorset, and his partner, Rusby Aragi. Their family were visiting the Gold Coast from the Australian Capital Territory for a wedding celebration and had decided to devote a day to Dreamworld. Just ahead of them were the Lowe family, Cindy, husband Matthew and their two children, enjoying a family holiday. As the next raft pulled up, the Lowe's stepped closer. As the senior attendant gestured for the four people ahead of them to embark, Cindy noted that their family would not be able to fit on the raft together. Briefly, she thought they might wait for the next raft to arrive, but turned to consider the people in line behind her. Cindy decided not to force Kate, Luke and Rusebe to wait longer than necessary. She encouraged her husband to take their daughter on the ride that had just pulled in. Cindy and their son would join Kate's family when the next raft arrived. And so it was that Cindy Lowe and her 10-year-old son, Kate Goodchild and her 12-year-old daughter, Luke Dorset and Rusebe Aragi boarded the Thunder River Rapid rides together. They would not reach the end. On the final stage of the ride, as the raft approached the conveyor that would drag the raft up the slope to the station, the pumps failed for the third time. The water levels dropped quickly and under other circumstances this meant that by the time the rafts reached the mechanism it would settle onto the support rails and be unable to move with the usual speed. While annoying, the group had no real concerns about waiting a little longer to disembark. Unfortunately, there was already a raft stranded on those support rails. They collided. Both rafts pivoted upwards to a near 90 degree angle. The stationary raft fell back down to its horizontal position, but the edge of the raft carrying Cindy, Kate, Luke and Rusebe got caught in a gap in the conveyor mechanism which pulled the raft further, causing it to tip backwards, end over end. The ride's harnesses were not designed to secure passengers in these circumstances. In the event of a raft flipping upside down elsewhere in the river, it is imperative that patrons be able to easily slip free so that they are not held underwater. Suspended at such an extreme angle, 
The family members began to fall from the raft into the shallow water below, through the gaps in the wooden sleepers, directly into the mechanism of the conveyor belt itself. Only the two children managed to hold onto their harnesses. Two of the victims were pinned to the conveyor belt by the raft and likely drowned. The other two were caught by the conveyor belt and pulled into the gears of the mechanism. The panicked attendant at the controls had frozen, completely unsure of what to do. Grabbing her walkie-talkie, she tried to get the attention of the master control room to ask them to shut the ride down. This took precious moments that the family below did not have. The master control board did not have such a kill switch for the Thunder River Rapids ride. Only a slow stop, which would allow the ride to gradually wind down until coming to a halt. This too was time the family did not have. A later investigation into the tragedy would identify the conspicuous button at the ride controls the young attendant was told to ignore. It was the emergency stop. Dreamworld's first aid team rushed to the site when the supervising attendant screamed for help over the radio. One of them, a former paramedic named Shane Green, jumped into the water as soon as he arrived, straining to move the raft in a desperate hope to bring someone out of the water. Crawling underneath, he was met with the trauma-inducing sight of three of the passengers, their bodies caught and disfigured by the machine beneath them. At this point, Green knew there was no help that would make a difference. Park crews were joined by state emergency service personnel who spent hours trying to work out a recovery plan. When patrons were cleared from the area, maintenance teams opened the drainage on the ride to allow the bodies of the four victims to be freed. Only as the water level dropped were the rescuers met with the full extent of the horror of their final moments. The coroner's report would eventually state that the cause of death was severe trauma, grievous wounds to the head, chest and midsection. The two children who had clung to their lives to their seats on the raft were pulled to safety by park staff once the ride had been shut down. Other nearby family members swept them up and they cried together over their loss. Shane Green remembers the screams of the onlookers that day. Those screams still wake him at night. He has been unable to work since the disaster. Under direction from the Queensland Police, Dreamworld closed their gates to allow the investigation to be conducted properly. The Thunder River Rapids had been declared a crime scene and the park would not be allowed to reopen without the approval of a magistrate. Knowing that their reputation hung in the balance, Dreamworld chose to close the ride permanently, acknowledging that any return to operation would be considered an insult to the victims and their families. They hoped that with a more complete understanding of the accident, they would be able to put it behind them and focus on moving ahead. It was far from over. Dreamworld and its corporate managers, the Ardent Group, were about to experience a reckoning. The police investigation lasted for almost one year. At the end of that time, no single person could be held responsible for the failure that devastated so many families. In light of this, no criminal charges were filed and the police handed over their materials for the coroner's investigation to begin. This process lasted nearly three years. But from the earliest stages, those in charge knew exactly where to devote their focus. A thorough search of the park's records indicated that there were no appropriate standards for safety procedures, essential training or ongoing maintenance. The turmoil that had began with the very first change of ownership had carried forward and no systems for accurate filing or record keeping were put in place. Furthermore, 
examination of the riots themselves showed how haphazardly things were dealt with on a regular basis. In the 30 years of its operation, no safety regulation inspection had been conducted on the Thunder River Rapids, and government auditors had contributed to the problem by signing off on authorization forms without proper review. Modifications made over the years had not been inspected either. The controls of the ride itself came under scrutiny, being labelled as a confusing and poorly laid out system. The issue of the emergency stop button was, of course, of great interest to the coroner's office, who ultimately determined that the entire tragedy could have been avoided at any moment, right up until the rafts collided if that button had been pressed. In the end, the entire organisation was culpable. Queensland coroner James McDougall made clear in his report, such a culture can exist only when leadership from the board down are careless in respect of safety. That cannot be allowed. The recommendation following this inquest was that the Queensland Office of Industrial Relations consider the Dreamworld parent company, Ardent Leisure, and determine if charges should be made under workplace laws. On the 21st of July, 2020, three breaches of workplace health and safety were filed against Ardent, who pled guilty the day before trial was due to commence. The company was fined $3.6 million. It came to light in the following months that executives at Ardent had not made personal contact with the victims' families in the wake of the tragedy. When pressed for comment on this, Chief Executive at the time, Deborah Thomas, claimed that they did not know how to get in touch with all of them. This statement failed to impress the public, or the families who by this time were considering legal action. This never came to fruition, as Ardent settled for undisclosed amounts with nearly everybody involved. Publicly, the promise was made. Whatever the recommendations that came out of the report, Dreamworld would see them actioned and put in place immediately. In December of 2020, Ardent Leisure themselves contacted Workplace Health and Safety Queensland to inform them of some near misses on site. One of their maintenance staff barely avoided being crushed by a falling three-ton arm from the pandemonium while they were conducting repairs. Around the same time, a patron was hurt while on the triple vortex water slide, although they were cleared of any serious injury on the same day. It is very likely that Ardent was proactive about informing Work Health and Safety Queensland in order to stay ahead of any negative media attention which may have indicated that new regulations and standards may not have been as forthcoming as initially promised. These incidents followed a far more serious one in the month prior, where an eight-year-old girl received serious internal injuries on the fully six water slide. The reaction to this incident suggests that staff still have little to no idea of how to respond to a real crisis event. When confronted with a traumatized, excessively bleeding child, staff could barely be roused enough to point to the first aid station. The child would later require two surgeries for her injuries. Though efforts had been made to regain public favour, Dreamworld now finds itself fighting an uphill battle as their efforts at reparations and a memorial for the victims are dismissed by the families as cheap and meaningless. Trying to mend their image seems to only have added to their burden. In 2019, Dreamworld recorded some of their lowest annual figures in 20 years. The fines they have been required to pay following the workplace health and safety audit may not appear significant, but they come in the time of the coronavirus pandemic, which has yet to reveal its full impact on the entertainment industry and on Ardent Leisure specifically. 
After all this time, is the dream finally coming to an end? Ardent Leisure built a memorial garden to honour the memory of Rusbe, Luke, Kate and Cindy at Dreamworld last year. I'm Holly Mitchell and this is Fairground Fuck Ups.